So we're starting a new series today. My son Caleb stopped by the church office the other day when this baby rolled in. We get another one coming next week, and he goes, where do you people find these things? <laughs> starting a new church series today called The Elephant in the Family Room. This is my friend. We'll have a contest to name him sometime during the series. Um, maybe this morning we'll call him Denial. But uh, I want to start um, with a short story for you this morning. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to wade into some heavy stuff, and we're giving you a heads up. Um, but in order to do that, I want to be like Papa John, have you all gather around my feet. And it's a cold, cold evening out, cold morning. We can pretend we're around the fire. I'm going to read you a short story, all right? So, so just gather around and put your defenses down and, and let Grandpa John share a little story with you. Is that okay? All right. All right, here we go. So this is a story. It's actually interesting. It was written... Um, in the 14th century, in the late 1300s, by a guy named Don Juan Manuel. Such a powerful truth in this story that 400 years later, Hans Christian Andersen adopted it into the fashion that many of us might know it now. So as we kick off this new series about our families called Elephant in the Room, I want to, in a sense, gather around and share this with you. Ready? Listen up. Many years ago, there was an emperor so exceedingly fond of new clothes that he spent all of his money on being well-dressed. In the great city where he lived, life was always gay. Every day, many strangers came into town, but among them, one day came two swindlers. They let it be known among around town that they were weavers, and they said they could weave the most magnificent fabrics imaginable. Not only were their colors and patterns uncommonly fine, but clothes made of this cloth had a wonderful way of becoming invisible to anyone who was unfit for his office or who was unusually stupid. Those would be just the clothes for me, thought the emperor. I mean, if I wore those, I'd be able to discover which men in my empire are unfit for their posts, and I could tell the wise men from the fools. Yes, he said, I must certainly get some of that stuff woven for me right away. And so he paid the two swindlers a large sum of money to start work at once. Now they set up two looms and they pretended to weave, though there was nothing on the looms. All of the finest silk and the purest gold thread which they demanded went straight into their traveling bags while they worked the empty looms far into the night. Well, I'd like to know how those weavers are getting on with the cloth, the emperor thought. But he felt slightly uncomfortable when he, rem rem when he remembered that those who were unfit for their position would not be able to see the fabric. Now, it couldn't have been that he, he doubted himself, yet he thought he'd rather send someone else to see how things are going. So the whole town knew about the clothes' peculiar power, and everybody in town was impatient to find out how stupid their neighbors were going to turn out to be. I'll send my honest old minister to the weavers, the emperor decided. He'll be the best one to tell me how the material looks, for he's a sensible man, and no one does his duty better. So the honest old minister, kind of like old Uncle John up here, the honest old minister went to the room where the two swindlers sat working at their empty looms. Heaven, help me, he thought as his eyes flew wide open. I can't see anything at all. But he didn't say so. But he didn't say so. Well, both the swindlers begged him to be so kind as to come near to approve the excellent pattern and the beautiful colors. They pointed to the empty looms, and the poor old minister stared as hard as he dared, and he couldn't see anything because there was nothing to see. 
Heaven have mercy, he thought. Can it be that I'm a fool? I'd never have guessed it. And not a soul must know. Am I unfit to be the minister? It, it would never do to let on that I can't see the cloth. Well, don't hesitate to tell us what you think of it, said one of the weavers. Oh, it's beautiful, the old minister peered through his spectacles. Such a pattern. What colors? I'll be sure to tell the emperor how delighted I am with it. Well, we're pleased to hear that, the swindlers said. And they proceeded to name all the colors and to explain the intricate patterns. And the old minister paid the closest attention so that he could tell it all to the emperor. And so he did. So the swindlers at once asked for more money, more silk, more gold thread to get on with the weaving. But it all went in their pockets. Not a thread went into the looms, though they worked at their weaving as hard as ever. The emperor presently decided to send another trustworthy official to see how the work progressed and, and to see how soon it would be ready. And the same thing happened to him that happened in the ministry. He looked and he looked, but there was nothing to see in the looms. He couldn't see anything. Isn't it a beautiful piece of goods, the swindlers asked him as they displayed and described their imaginary pattern. I know I'm not stupid, the man thought, so it must be that I'm unworthy of my good office. That's strange. I mustn't let anyone find out, though. So he praised the material he did not see. He declared he was delighted with the beautiful colors and the exquisite pattern. To the emperor, he said, it held me spellbound. All the town was talking of the splendid cloth, and the emperor wanted to see it for himself while it was still in the looms. So attended by a band of chosen men, among whom were his two old trusted officials, the ones who had been to the weavers, he set out to see the two swindlers. And he found them weaving with might and main, but without a thread in their looms. Magnificent, said the two officials already duped. Just look, your majesty, what colors, what a design. And they pointed to the empty looms, each supposing that the other could see the stuff. What's this, thought the emperor? I can't see anything. This is terrible. Am I a fool? Am I unfit to be the emperor? What a thing to happen to me of all people. Uh, oh, it's very pretty, he said. It has my highest approval. Nothing could make him say that he couldn't see anything. His whole court stared and stared. One saw no more than the other, but they all joined the emperor in exclaiming, oh, it's very pretty. And they advised him to wear clothes made of this wonderful cloth, especially for the great parade he was soon to lead. Magnificent, excellent, unsurpassed were bandied from mouth to mouth, and everyone did his best to seem well pleased. Well, before the parade, the swindlers sat up all night and burned more than six candles to just show how busy they were finishing the emperor's new clothes. They pretended to take the cloth off the loom. They made cuts in the air with huge scissors. And at last they said, now, now the emperor's new clothes are ready for him. Well, the emperor came himself with his noblest of noblemen, and the swindlers each raised an arm as if they were holding something. And they said, here, emperor, these are the trousers, and here's the coat, and, and this is the mantle, and naming each garment. All of them are as light as a spider web. One would almost think he had nothing on, but that's what makes them so fine. Exactly all the noblemen agreed, though they could see nothing, for there was nothing to see. If your imperial majesty will condescend to take your clothes off, said the swindlers, and we'll help you on with your new ones here in front of the long mirror. And so the emperor undressed, and the swindlers pretended to put on his new clothes, one garment after another. How well your majesty's clothes look. Aren't they becoming? 
He heard on all sides. The pattern, it's so perfect. The colors, they're so suitable. It's a magnificent outfit. Then the minister of public processions announced, Your Majesty, the parade is waiting outside. Well, I'm supposed to be ready, the emperor said, and turned again for one last look in the mirror. It's a remarkable fit, isn't it? He seemed to regard his costume with the greatest interest. The noblemen who were to carry his train stooped low and reached for the floor as they were picking up his mane, and they pretended to lift it and hold it high. They didn't dare to admit they had nothing to hold on to. So off went the emperor in procession under his splendid canopy, and everyone in the streets and in the windows yelled out, Oh, how fine are the emperor's new clothes! Don't they fit him to perfection? And see his long train! Because nobody would confess that they couldn't see anything. Because that would prove him either unfit for his position or a fool. No costume the emperor had worn before was ever such a complete success. But he doesn't have anything on, a little child said. Oh, did you ever hear such innocent prattle? The father quieted him, and one person whispered to another what the child had said. Uh, he said he doesn't have anything on. He said he doesn't have anything on. Yeah, he said he doesn't have anything on. The child said he doesn't have anything on. But he hasn't got anything on, the whole town cried out at last. The emperor shivered because he kind of suspected they were right, but he thought, this procession has got to go on, so he walked more proudly than ever as his noblemen held high the train that wasn't there for all to see. You see, I tell you that story, that classic story of the emperor, because swindlers have come to town. Really not just to town, to your home and to my home. And we, like the emperor and his court of fools, have been led to believe and to live out in front of each other and with each other and telling each other and pretending with each other Day after day, every Sunday morning, in every Facebook post we put out there, in every Christmas card and letter we've ever written, one big, hairy, gigantic, powerful, addictive, metastasizing, multiplying, delusional lie. And it's this. My family is fine. Our family's fine. I see... The truth is, it, actually, my family's more than fine. I mean, my family's perfect. Marriage? Fantastic. Oh, the wife and I love each other. Date nights every Tuesday. Kids? Wonderful. Never screw up. Finances? We have more money than we know what to do with. See, we just keep telling ourselves these stories, and, and so we look at each other, we come in on Sundays, and it's like, you know, we have this thing going on, especially in the church, especially in the church, that, like, our family would make the Brady Bunch and the Huxtables look dysfunctional in comparison. We, we used to get these Christmas cards from, if you've been around the church, you know, I've told this story over the years. We used to get these Christmas cards at our house, and they would have letters in it from this a family friend of Joan's. It was her, we didn't really know these people that well. It was her sister's friend, and they would write this long Christmas letter every year, and it was just... I mean, a ridiculously braggadocious letter. You know where you read it and you're like, you got to be kidding me, right? Um, in fact, there's a, these Christmas letters have a few things in common. Uh, we, we never share anything that's actually hard going on in the Christmas letter. 
One year we got a Christmas letter from them and suddenly the husband was gone and there was a new man in the picture. But <laughs> it was never mentioned. Um, you know, completely true story. Uh, it was another family came up to me after church and said they got one one time where, you know, from a, a, another person in the family, a distant relative, and, and they got a card from, um, you know, mom and dad and Margot, and, and the next year the card came from mom and dad and Joe, but there was no, you know, discussion about what had happened to Margot who had transitioned into Joe over the, the year. Because we don't talk about it, you know, we just write our letter about everything that we want everybody to know. You know, you might see them. I mean, I've gotten them, right? Greetings from the Smith, Smith family. We wish you a healthy, happy new year. Now, here's my feeling. The Smiths should have stopped right there. I mean, isn't that really all I really wanted to hear from the Smiths? I haven't seen the Smiths in 14 years. And to be honest, I don't really care that much about the Smiths. And yet they wrote me a two-page letter thinking I have nothing better to do but then read this. But you've read it, right? John got a big promotion this year at Future Bright. As you've probably read in the papers, Future Bright is in the forefront of the chemistry research worldwide. And John is somehow surviving without baseball, but he's so busy with his hobbies and investments that it hardly seems to matter. Marsha's getting ready for graduate school. She'll begin graduate studies next fall at B.F. Skinner Institute for Advanced Studies in Behavioral Methodology. David's doing great in sixth grade, taking algebra at high school, though. Doing quite well, the high schoolers love him. He's a terrific pitcher in the Little League, and, and this year he took up golf. Endicott, they always have a kid with a, a fancy name. Endicott is now in kindergarten. He loves to read and to write, and he's making lots of new friends. And, and so Joan and I, we would get this letter every year, and you know, I think we have a pretty decent family. We have our issues, and we have a couple of elephants, but man, I would read this letter every year, and I'd go, oh man, I'm raising a bunch of losers. Uh, <laughs> Here's the story. That's not the story of, of my family, but it's not the story of any family. It's like a highlight video without any of the lowlights, right? So some of you know, for years I've been wanting to write my own Christmas letter that kind of comes from a different perspective and, and just kind of come at it a different way. Something like maybe this, you know, the Jones family wishes you the best. We've certainly had our ups and downs this year. All I can say is thank God for Zoloft. I'm happy to report that Bob's affair is finally over. <laughs> All his jokes about if those politicians can do it, why can't I, were beginning to wear pretty thin. Unfortunately, just when he stopped seeing that other woman, he lost his job at low tech. He was just a month away from full vesting for retirement, but we'll get by. I mean, if Bob can finally hit it big with one of those hundred lottery tickets he buys every week. And Tim, good news, he's finished with rehab. He's even... <laughs> Talking about going back to school, although he might have to wait. It all depends on how things go in court next month. <laughs> Jeannie's had some troubles in college this year, but mainly due to a bunch of bad teachers. She told us that in all of her courses, the exams were never exactly what she expected. The grading was unfair. She's on academic probation. She's thinking about dropping out, but she says she wants to find herself. But we're excited about our new relationship. It's been three weeks now, and so we're crossing our fingers that maybe this is the one. He's really nice, and he says he's very close to being divorced. 
And little Danny's not so little anymore. He's the biggest kid in his first grade class. His teacher says Danny likes to hit the other kids, but <laughs> Bob's feeling is the teacher's picking on him because he's so big. We recently had a knife incident, but I think that was blown way out of proportion. <laughs> it was just a butter knife that Danny bought into school, and I don't think suspension was necessary. And see, you know why you laugh? Because you know it's true. This is what we do, right? I mean, go read our Facebook pages. We don't save it up for Christmas anymore. We just posted it two, three times a week. And so that's the underlying thought behind these next couple of weeks. That both within and outside of our family, within and outside of our family room, we tend to try to make things look a lot better than they really are. We all know that within our families, we have these elephants in the room, these, these things that we don't want to deal with or talk about or engage in, even with each other. And so rather than deal with them, we just put on a pretty face, post the Christmas Eve picture, write a jolly letter. But we never bring any healing or wholeness to the most important relationships in our lives. I have an incredible ability to sit on the couch next to the elephant and watch the New York Mets. We just like the emperor and his court. We live in these powerful denials about the truth and about ourselves and about those we love. And we carry on in a public parade I mean, this is until, until what finally happens? Usually some kid opens his mouth and says, you know, he doesn't have any clothes on, right? I mean, that's actually happened in our home, right? In my house, where my kids, before they're old enough to realize that we're not supposed to talk about these things, actually decide they're going to talk about these things. Until a kid comes along and pokes the elephant. Mommy, why do you and Daddy fight so much? You're always fighting. Daddy, why does mommy drink so much? This thought, this lie, this charade, it's powerful and it's pervasive. And I think these weeks are going to be incredibly valuable. Uh, even if you say, well, I'm not married, I don't have kids, I think, I think the truths we're going to be going over have applications not just in families and family rooms, but in offices and gyms and cafeterias because the truths are or the truth that we're going to be looking at have to do with relationships and dynamics and our incredible ability to not poke elephants. So foundational num truth number one that underlies the whole series. I hope you'll join me in admitting it. I hope you'll join me in maybe embracing it a little bit. No family is perfect. Not mine. Not yours. I will show you in a few minutes that Jesus' family wasn't perfect. And it's this incessant pressure that so many of us feel, especially when you're good Christian people. I mean, what drives people to church, right? So what drives us to bring our kids to church? We want them to grow up to be good people. And then, so when we show up here and things aren't great with our kids or aren't great in our marriage, we begin to hide because I can't let you think less of me. So here's the deal. Uh, one thing I, I would love for us to achieve together over the next few weeks is to, to just be able to one with another go, I don't have to march in this parade anymore. This is silly. Everything's not fine. My kids are human beings that mess up. And I don't have to keep pretending that everything's perfect. Because once you'll do that, then you can begin 
to start to, to work through some of the elephants in the room. But when you feel tremendous pressure that your family be perfect, all that does is build up gigantic walls and hides truths and keeps you looking straight ahead and not dealing with issues that need to be dealt with. Because here's the deal. Your marriage isn't perfect. And guess what? Either is mine. But if I keep lying to you and lying to my wife about it, I'm never going to fix it. My kids aren't perfect. <laughs> but either are yours. See, there's already a good thing. Look, my in-laws are crazy, and so are yours. <laughs> I can't remember the first time I became aware of this, but I, I, I don't remember what the issue was, but I remember my parents were in a big argument about something or another. It was a big deal, and I can't remember what it was, but we were going over to the neighbors for dinner that night. I was a little boy, I and I just remember that they, right before we walked out the door, they turned and said, this doesn't get spoken of. And it's like this thing, oh, oh. I didn't realize we don't talk about these things. We just keep these on the down low. And, and, and so, I don't know, that, that happened at some point, uh, and, and, and it gets reinforced over time. I remember now, I, I was in high school, and I was talking back to my mom, and I shouldn't have been. I was, I was you know, my mom and I had, had this tough relationship when I was in high school. I was always trying, because of me, I was being a jerk. And I said something, um, I'm sure that was not nice, and my mom hauled off. These are pre diapers age, you know, back in the, uh, <laughs> back in the late 90s. <laughs> She uh, hauled off and took a swing at me, right? Uh, and so I ducked, and in my desire to duck, I smacked my head into the corner of the wall. And if you've ever hit your head on a corner, it just opens, you know, it's like a fillet. It just opens right up. And so I started kind of bleeding out. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, you know, this is gold when you're a kid, right? Like, and so she looked at me and she said, we are going to the hospital, and if you say one word of this to anybody, you're dead. How this happened? And mom, my mom watches online. Mom, I've never said anything until right now, in all of these years. If you say anything about how this happened, you're dead. I remember one, one Easter, we first started coming here to Menham Hills, and Joan's family was coming into town, uh, her brother-in-law and her sister-in-law, and they were just, per I mean, they seemed perfect. You know what I mean? Just perfect. I mean, sickeningly perfect. And uh, so they come, and they're staying in our house, and we're trying to put on this beautiful family scene, and it's Easter Sunday morning. And so here, Courtney was about a year and a half or two years old, and Courtney was, God, God love her, she was tough, man. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks when we get the kids, but um, so everybody can tell Courtney that when they see her later. Hey, good news, Court, two weeks from now, we're going to hear all about you. Um, <laughs> she was tough, man, and she's in there, and Joan's trying to do her hair, and the two of them are fighting in there like cats, and you can just hear it. <laughs> and it's going on, and it's bad, but, you know, I don't know what to do. Nobody taught me. I didn't go to parenting school or, or, or husband school, so I didn't know what to do. I'm kind of standing out there. And so in marches her sister, and she looks at me, and she goes, are you going to do something about this? And I said, I, I don't know what to I just kind of looked at her and smiled. I don't know what to do about it. Do you know what to do about it? And uh, so I ignored it which I'm, I have an incredible ability to ignore elephants. And uh, so I ignored it, and we all got in the car because we were coming to church. And uh, this is, we didn't have cell phones back then. It was, back, uh, it was a while ago. And so we're driving here to Menham Hills and coming down 206. And, you know, we were new. We'd only been here a few weeks. And I wasn't totally, you know, I was a little distracted, mad at my wife, mad at my kid, mad at my sister-in-law. And I'm driving down 206. Well, the next thing I know, I'm in Bedminster. Um, you know, I just I missed it by like 20 minutes. And then, you know, so now I'm, now, everybody's mad at me, and we pull up into church on Easter Sunday morning, we walk in here. Happy Easter, brother, how are you? Amen, couldn't be better, how are you? <laughs> He's risen indeed. 
Because I can't let you know. Because if I let you know, I mean, then you might judge me, or you might think I'm, I, I'm not a good Christian, or, or you might think that, that I can't control my family, or you might think all of these things about, about me. Because we all think everybody else's family is perfect. Do you remember that family in high school that you, know, you hung out with? Um, and, and you thought, man, how come I can't have a family like that? I mean, the dad's cool, and the mom's hip, and you know, I gotta live with Nerdsville over here, and um, I just wanna have a family like theirs. And my, my parents got divorced, and, and so they had kind of a dysfunctional relationship when I was growing up. And I remember, I've told this story before, and it just resonated with the, in the heart of a, an eighth or ninth grade boy. My friend Mike McCaffrey was driving me home from an event at high school, and we stopped at Mike's house, and, Mike's mom had driven us from the high school to his house, and now his dad was going to get in and drive me home. And so as she got out of the car and he came through the car, they crossed in front of the headlights of the car, and uh, they stopped and, and held each other and gave each other a kiss. I had never seen that before. It was, I thought to myself, wow, I wish my mom and dad had that kind of relationship. Because, see, we all think everybody else's family is, is better than our own. We all think that nobody else has any of these issues going on, and it forces us to just pretend and pretend and to march in a parade when no, but the truth is nobody's got any clothes on. We just keep walking and never fixing anything. There has, in the history of the world, been only one relationship that had no issues, and it didn't last long. Where there was true unconditional love and harmony and joy and trust and peace, only one relationship, and it was the relationship between, as the scriptures describe it, Adam and Eve in the garden when they walked together with God. They were literally made for one another, made from one another, but literally, you have to understand, even in that first relationship, it got messed up by evil. You know the story. Eve falls prey to the same old line that has been trapping humanity forever. You know, Eve, you can be like God. You can decide for yourself what's right and what's wrong. All you need to do is, is eat of this tree, and so she does. And, and then she convinces her husband to eat. John Eldridge says that that's the first time that man decides he's going to choose a woman over God. And, and men have been doing that for centuries, right? Like, a lot, just, just constantly put lowering God. And so suddenly, the first thing that happens when sin comes in the world is what? They immediately hide from one another. They put clothes on. Let's not talk about this. We're just going to cover this up. And then God comes into the garden. And what do they do? They run to the bushes. Nothing to see here, God. Keep on going. It's fine. No need to talk about anything that happened here, God. We're good. And so begins the elephants. And they just keep coming. They have two sons. Cain and Abel, right? And it's just the second generation of humanity. You have Cain killing Abel over sibling rivalry and jealousy. Do you know there are almost no good family stories in the Bible? We talk about Christian family values. Oof. <laughs> Go read the stories of family in the scripture. This is what I love about the scripture. I mean, the scripture it just it tells it the way it is. I'm going to run through a couple of them for you. Noah. Right? No, by the way, the Bible is a very R-rated book in a lot of places. A lot of things you can't really talk about in church. But Noah, for example, your kids are playing with that ark and the little two-by-two -two animals at home. But Noah, when he got done saving his family from the flood, many of you know he gets himself hammered, drunk, walks around naked, and his son sees him, Ham, walking, his not son's name is Ham, walking around, and he, he starts to make fun of his father for his naked, drunk condition. And, and so Noah, Noah puts a curse on his son. He curses his son. 
And then you have Abraham's family, and God promises a child to Abraham and Sarah, but he didn't want to wait on Sarah to get pregnant, so he winds up fooling around with the maid, and Hagar gets pregnant, who is the maid, and she has a son named Ishmael, but then they made fun of Sarah for not being able to get pregnant, and Hagar and Ishmael leave because they're no longer welcome in the family, and then Lot, Lot comes along, and Lot tries to give his daughters over to a, a bunch of sexual deviants just to save his own self, and Isaac comes along, and Jacob, one of his twin boys, swindles Esau, the other twin, out of his birthright. Uh, tries, he lies to his dad with the help of his mother, Rebecca. And Esau, his brother, understandably wants to kill his brother Jacob. So Jacob runs away and lives with his crazy uncle Laban, who tricks him into marrying his less than gorgeous daughter Leah. And then as a goodwill gesture, he throws in his other hot daughter, Rachel. And <laughs> this is the story of the scriptures. It goes on. These are your relatives. <laughs> Jacob comes along. He has 12 boys, and he decides, you know, he likes the youngest one, Joseph, so he gives him a special coat. Well, that doesn't sit well with all the older brothers. They're ticked off. So instead of just ignoring him, they throw him in a hole and try to kill him. But the older brother, he takes a more reasonable response, and he just sells him into slavery in Egypt. And then they go home, and they tell their dad an animal killed him. And you think, you don't like your brother. And then King Saul comes along, Israel's first king, and he's jealous of a shepherd boy named David, and he becomes obsessed with killing him, and then Saul's son, Jonathan, protects David, and he chooses his friend over his dad, and the dad and the son get estranged from one another. How about Jesus' family? I just love this. I don't even know why it's in the scripture, because I think maybe, I think God has a sense of humor, and he wants us to, to know that you know, we all have these issues. So, so many of you know the story. Mary and Joseph, they go into Bethlehem, right? And they go to the temple to do their religious duties. And time's, time has come for them to go back to, to where they're from. And so they pack up and they leave. And a day later, they realize that their 12-year-old son, Jesus, is not with them. A day later! <laughs> it's back. To, the Bible actually says they went back to Bethlehem looking for him. It took them three days to find him. Now, if you're Jesus, you've got to be thinking, right? Like... I mean, this is something that would drive therapy for most children later in life, right? I mean, my parents just abandoned me. They forgot. They didn't even realize they didn't have me with them for a day. I did leave my kids in a couple places, but I usually figured it out after like a half hour. <laughs> Jesus, the scripture says Jesus' his own family didn't believe him. He himself was the elephant in his own family. So you're not alone. And if we'll get to the place as a community where we say it's okay here, that we're all, it's okay here. We're working this out together. We're not going to participate in the parade. We're not going to keep pretending we, everything's fine. You can bring healing there. You can, you can stop the silence there. I have, to, I have to show you the danger of silence. The danger of not dealing with the elephant in your family room. I'm going to tell you about the story of David this morning. Just one biblical family I'm going to point out about what happens to the power of elephants when they're left unchecked. Now, you might know who David was if, if you kind of grew up. You've heard the story of, of David and Goliath. And David was this young shepherd boy, this small little shepherd boy. In fact, there's a whole other study there on the crud that he was handed beyond all the stories I just told you that were part of his lineage. You've also got his father didn't believe in him, and we could go through that. But he winds up, he, he takes down Goliath, and he winds up becoming king of Israel. But like so many of us, it doesn't matter how successful you are in life, he doesn't know how to deal with elephants. 
And so he uses the same technique that so many of us do. And if you're like me, this is what I can do. Just let it be. Don't deal with it. Pretend everything's fine. Hope it'll go away. In fact, it's interesting. If you do, um, you could go home. It's actually really fascinating. Do the psychological studies on dysfunction in families. And they'll say that the number one dysfunction of families is denial, the refusal to accept reality or fact, acting as if a painful event, thought, or feeling didn't exist. It's considered the most primitive of the defense mechanisms. It is the most primitive defense mechanism. And I, here I am, a somewhat well-educated, successful person. And given the right set of circumstances, given the elephant in the room, I go right back to, why is it the most primitive? Because it is characteristic of early childhood development. I go right back to being a kid. Didn't see it, Dad. Didn't know. And so here's this King David, the man the Bible calls, a man after God's own heart. Relationally, he's just a simple child, and he doesn't know how to deal with elephants. The Bible tells us in 2 Samuel, David, see, he has two sons. He's actually got more than two sons, and he's, he's got wives. And we'll talk about that whole mess in a couple of weeks, too. But he's got more than one wife. But he's got one son named Amnon, and he's got another son named Absalom. And he had a daughter who was Absalom's full sister named Tamar. Okay, so you can follow me now. I want you to understand this. Tamar and Absalom are half-sister and brother to Amnon. Okay, so Tamar and Absalom are full brothers and sisters. And so the Bible, which as I said is a pretty dicey book because it deals with stuff that happens in families. It deals with elephants in rooms. The Bible tells how Amnon, I'm just going to tell you the way it is. The Bible tells how Amnon incessantly literally is burning with lust and passion for his half-sister, Tamar. I mean, he has it so bad for her that people are coming up to him going, man, you look like crud. What's the matter with you? And he goes, I'm just, just burning with passion for my half-sister. So Amnon devised, devised a plan where he has, with the unknowing help of his father, David, he has his sister come to take care of him while he pretends that he's sick. And when she comes, he sends everyone else away. And he, he rapes her. He rapes his sister. Now, she begs him not to. She pleads with him not, not to bring this shame upon her and the family or the country. But nevertheless, he does. And the Bible is very raw about the pain that this causes Tamar. The kind of pain that this kind of thing, by the way, which really does happen in families more than you know. Because families are not perfect. Theirs wasn't, mine isn't, yours isn't. This kind of thing needed to be dealt with. It needed to be cared for. It needed healing. It needed counseling. It was darkness that needed light brought to it. It was the kind of pain that needed somebody to enter in and care. But here's what happened in David's family. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 15 after the whole thing was over, after Amnon had had his way with her, then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. She hadn't done anything other than he had raped her. So Amnon says to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him. I mean, sending me away now, that would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. Here comes the elephant. But he refused to listen to her. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to hear from you. I don't want to see you anymore. 
we're going to pretend that this never happened. Get out and shut up. And so, a short time later, Absalom, who loves his sister Tamar deeply, he sees her, and, and she's disheveled. And, and in fact, some of the clothing she's wearing, uh, which was symbolic of her purity, she had ripped. And he looks, and he puts two and two together. And, and now Absalom, who loves her so much, and here comes, because when you love somebody, you, you still have an incredible ability to put elephants in the room. Just because you love somebody doesn't mean the dysfunction, doesn't mean the elephants aren't stuck in rooms. Watch what happens with Absalom in verse 20. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? And what does he tell her? Be quiet for now. My sister, he's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Absalom is no better solution for the dysfunction than Amnon. In fact, despite his love for her, the solution's the same. Be quiet. Let's not talk about it. I'm not sure it's time to deal with this. And like a typical man, it's like me talking to my wife about deep things. Oh, you know, I didn't mean to say it. Don't take it to heart. It's okay. Let it go. And it cost Tamar her, her whole functioning life in many ways. She lived in the basement, a desolate woman. And so the elephant, the silence, the undealt with dysfunction, the denial, everything will be all right. Just don't think about it. It not only ruins the life of Tamar, but the elephant grows and it metastasizes around the country. And so word get back, gets back to King David. His daughter has been raped. But nobody ever taught David how to deal with this. And verse 21. When King David heard all of this, he was furious. And you know what he did? Nothing. He was furious. And in his fury, he did nothing. He didn't call Tamar in. He didn't call his daughter in and hold her. He didn't call his son Amnon in and demand some kind of justice. He didn't call his other son Absalom in and say, let's bring some healing to the family. See, that's what elephants do. They, they like silence. They breed silence. They grow in silence. And for Absalom, he, after a while, he can't stand the dysfunction and the denial any longer. It says he, he, he didn't deal with it. It says in the scripture, he didn't say a word about it for two years. But he couldn't take it anymore. He couldn't take the idea of his father, King David, playing the silence game, so he takes matters into his own hands, and he creates a scheme, and he winds up killing his brother Amnon. Now, if you have elephants like this, and, and some of us have elephants like this, if you have these kind of elephants, not dealing with them, as we've seen, not only leads, leads to continued sin and dysfunction and pain, but to immense regret. Because the story goes on that over a couple of years, David begins to, to get past the mourning of the loss of his son Amnon. And he comes to a place of longing to fix things because he, his intentions are to make it right. He likely understood that it was his silence that had brought about all that had happened. Maybe he was at the root of the disaster. Verse 38 to 39 it says that Absalom fled and went to Geshar, and he stayed there three years. And, and King David longed to go to Absalom. 
because he had been consoled over Amnon's death. But he doesn't know how to do it. I, my wife and I were out the other day, and I was having a bad day, and uh, she said something, and I, I kind of was a little snippy with her. I mean, nothing bad, but a little, a little snippy. And uh, so uh, we went into the gym. We were at the gym, and we got back in the car, and I'm going, mm, I should apologize to her. I was a little snippy. I shouldn't have said it. Do you know, if I had done that to any of you, I could have apologized to you like that. What is it about the family that makes it so hard to say to my wife, I'm sorry? And so here's what's going on with King David. He longs to go to Absalom, but he has no idea what to do. I really should say I'm sorry. I really should go after him. I really could fix this. And so he actually winds up getting tricked into, into coming and bringing some healing to this. And he, he sends a servant named Joab to go get Absalom. He can't bring himself to go and deal with the whole thing. But he sends somebody, he feels bad about it, and he wants to fix it, so he, he, he sends somebody out to get him in, in 2 Samuel 14, 23 to 24. So Joab goes to Geshar, and he brings Absalom back to Jerusalem. You've got to imagine Absalom going, my father wants to see me? My father's interested in fixing this? My father wants to talk about this after all these years? But the king said, he's got to go to his own house. He can't see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the, king, the face of the king, and he lived for two years in Jerusalem without seeing his father's face. Because I don't know how to deal with this. I know he's back. I'm happy he's back. But if I bring him here, I don't know what he's going to think of me. I don't know what's going to happen. Because you have to enter the story. You have, to, you have to feel the weight of the characters. You have to feel David going, I, I, I don't want to meet with him face to face. I, I want healing, but I know I should say something, but I don't know how to bridge it. And so the emotional uh, elephant grows. The relational distance increases. The silence is, is deafening until Absalom can take it no more. And he actually starts the first civil war in Israel. And he overthrows the kingdom of his father, David. And the elephant that started in the room, in the palace family room, that elephant winds up costing the mothers and fathers of Israel thousands of their own sons' lives. Because elephants grow. Elephants metastasize. And as the civil war rages, it eventually winds up with the king's servant, Joab, killing Absalom now over the, over the wishes of David. David wanted, you know, that David's at war with Absalom, but he doesn't want Absalom killed. But in the final battle, Absalom winds up being killed. And the word now gets back to David about his second son being the victim of an elephant. And in maybe one of the most emotional verses in all of the scripture, this is what David's reaction is in 2 Samuel 18, 33. It says, the king was shaken when he heard news, and he went up to the room over the gateway, and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I, if only I had died instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. Absalom, if I, if I had only gone to Tamar, 
testifying. I wasn't so afraid of it not looking right. Absalom, if I, if I had only gotten these guys in a room, if only I hadn't been so stupid and stubborn. I picture thinking of Absalom as a child and thinking of all that there was, the family memories and all that it had become and just thinking, man, I, Absalom, I could have fixed it all, I could have dealt with it all and now it's too late. Now it's too late. Now it's too late. And so for our church, and with you and your mom or your dad or with your husband or your wife or your son or your daughter, I don't want that to be our story. Because that's so often the outcome. The hiding and the lying and the blaming and the seclusion. I mean, I want that to be your story. Listen, I, I know I'm wading into some tough stuff here. I know I'm touching on things that have pain involved in them. And I know we're not going to fix this overnight. There's an old saying that says, do you know how to, to, to eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And so I'm not going to be able to give you a three-point sermon that's going to fix every problem that's going on in all of your relationships. That's not necessarily what this is about. They're not going to get fixed overnight. But I do believe this, that we could create here in this community over the coming weeks, we could create a place where we stop pretending that we all see the clothes, you know, oh, everything's great, everything's fine, and we start becoming the kind of people that go, you know what, I'm not perfect, my, my, my family's not perfect, and that's okay, I can be here, I don't have to pretend, and I can get some help. And we can work through this, maybe we can work through it together. Maybe we could be the kind of place that could break the chains of the silence and the despair and the generational dysfunction that is grabbed on with such power to our families. And so this is just a taste of what's to come. This is not the answers today. What I want you to go home with is an understanding of it's okay not to be okay. And that silence in these matters can wind up killing. Now here's what I don't want you to do. Wives, do not go out in the car and say to your husband, oh man, I can't wait to tell you a few things. Because this mostly is going to be about us dealing with our own junk. Our own generational stuff. With the goal being, band come up. With the goal being that you and I, with your kids and your wife and your husband, before it's too late, before it's too late, the goal being that you never have to feel that the pain or the lament of King David. Oh, Absalom. Absalom. And so that you and I can hand to your sons and your daughters and to the next generation a couch free of elephants. Let's stand and sing about the grace of Jesus.